You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick once more. He's feeling under the weather still, but prayers up for Rick, and I'm sure that he'll be back on this podcast in no time. Playtesting is marketing is the topic at hand. So tell tell people how many t-shirts you sold. (laughs) I sold 683 (laughs) t-shirts. Oh my goodness. T-shirts are a podcast episode in and of themselves. Um, I'll tell you what, that uh, the t-shirts were so awesome. I would absolutely do it again. I hated how Backer Kit handled my t-shirts. Oh my goodness. It was awful and miserable. They, uh, you know, we set up questions so that people could pick their style and size you know, they would, they would add a product to their cart, which would be the style. And then they would pick a size, which would be a required question that you couldn't fin You couldn't lock your, or you couldn't uh, confirm your pledge unless you picked a style and a size of, of shirt and backer kit. When I export all the data, it decided to just, you know, send a style and a size on separate lines. It's like, wait, uh, you've got a deliverance shirt and also a medium shirt. It's like, well, what, what kind of medium shirt and what size deliverance shirt? Oh my goodness, it was awful. So I had to go through and edit this massive spreadsheet of you know about seven hundred lines and you know to to get all of this to work. And then they would just decide. Sometimes you only have a shirt, but we're not going to tell you what size it is. It's like oh my goodness, where are the sizes? And they were listed in. I actually had to go into individual backer profiles look at what size they picked and then add that to, um, yeah. So that just be the, the way you export it. You know, sometimes if you export a CSV, you can lose data and like a, what's an XML file can be a, a bit, I find XML is a little bit more robust. Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, so we exported every possible way that you could. And in general, it was the columns or the, um, SKU by line that we needed okay. That ended up working for us the in Backerkit. I don't know why. And truth be told, I'm kind of nervous. What if Backerkit decided to hide some of the data of, you know, the deluxe game? You know, it's, we're just not going to show you that this backer got a deluxe game. I, I don't really know if that's, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's the case. But when I had to ask questions and, you know, it was just, I did it the wrong way. I did it the way they told me to do it, but it was not the right way. And I'll definitely be handling that differently in the future. Not quite totally sure how I'm going to. Maybe if I just simply had only one type of shirt instead of three, you know, if there was if there was only one style, then all I need to do is ask the size. And then that that makes it really simple. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you start adding different styles, then it, it just complicates things. And really pledge managers, they don't, they're not supposed to be like select your custom t-shirt, you know, build your own t-shirt here. It's not really something like that. Uh, we had a um, total of nine SKUs for the game and we had 39 for t-shirts. So to give you an idea of the, the, okay. the gravity of, of adding shirts. Um, That's an so an SKU had, you know, for, for people. It's like an individual. It's item. like an individual product number. Yeah. So if, if, yeah. For, if it was the same red shirt, if it was like, if it was like a shirt that was red, would have an SKU. And if it was blue, the exact same shirt would have a separate SKU. Right. Except uh, the, the, the red shirt that's youth small has a different SKU from the red shirt that's youth medium. Yes. So yeah. there are 13 SKUs per style, which represent size youth small all the way through 6XL. And so that's a, kind of a, a nightmare to navigate, which I think we'll want to talk about. I will say that, yes, shirts are difficult. And if you're thinking about doing shirts, I caution you that it's not going to be that easy, but I sold 683 shirts. That's 683 billboards walking around that are going to advertise my company and my game at conventions. Those shirts, I can tell you from experience because we sold earlier, we sold like 200 shirts. It was, it was just, I want to say like 120 shirts and they gave 80 shirts to influencers and whatnot, um, uh, or so. And, um, we got a lot of buzz from that. And the only reason that we had shirts as a part of our Kickstarter campaign was because everybody wanted a deliverance shirt. Everybody wanted a deliverance shirt. And the people that had them wore them over and over again because they're extremely comfortable. I mean, they're like, they are, the you gave me one. Shirt. 
Yeah. So you you want to wear it to the the gym or the, you know, or to, you know, when you're lacing around the house or you can wear it out. Um, I wear mine to church all the time. I try to be careful about how often I wear them to church because I have so many of them that I could just be like wearing that shirt every single week. I need to like have variety. Um, Even even Sam Healy, uh I think on like a Crackalope video or something. Yeah, so, yeah. At the time, was, like people, people, like people in the community pointed it out, it's like, yeah, he's wearing the shirt. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, uh, Kyle Mann wore it on the on his Babylon B podcast uh, a couple of times, and uh, just it's just funny, you know, it's how you just randomly see these shirts in the wild, and so it's it's pretty cool. And also, when I walk around, like I went to uh, BGG Spring, which is a convention in uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, I did this last year, and then I I wore my Deliverance T shirt on the floor. And I was stopped constantly by people saying, are you affiliated with deliverance somehow? And I was like, yeah, I'm the deliverance guy. Like I backed your game. You know, that type <laughs> of thing was really cool to interact with people like that. And um, yeah. so, uh, but anyway, so I feel like, you know, we have around 2000 units of product left over after all the Kickstarter backers are satisfied. And that means I, I think just based on the way the t-shirts have sold, I think that the buzz and whatnot, we're just going to blow through those 2000 extra units uh, pretty quickly. And that's, you know, before marketing. So I actually kind of built in marketing on accident, really, just because people really wanted the shirts. I built in marketing into the actual Kickstarter. Um, so in a way, people paid us so that they could market for us. In, in addition, obviously, to a cool game, they have a really cool shirt that they they want to wear. So it's a it was a really fun case study that I think we we kind of touched on it a little bit now, but I think we can make an entire podcast about that. Might be good to talk about other ways of monetizing your games because I think this is the thing. You think I made a, a board game, but there's probably other ways you can monetize it through selling posters and mm-hmm. merch. Like you think of like films, that's how they monetize. You don't they actually don't really make much money from the film itself. It's like the action figures and and other yeah. things off. So like how many how many like frozen stuff have you seen? Like Disney frozen <laughs> stuff have you seen walking down the aisle? I don't know, Walmart and, yeah. and, and the States and the here in like I don't know the UK Morrisons or something. Uh it's everywhere. It's like it's yeah. used to sell. It's like, hey, do you want to buy canned beans? It's like what's like there's a frozen character on it. <laughs> let it go. Let, yeah. let it go on a can of beans. Oh, yeah. So that's pretty darn cool. Um but uh, but yeah, so let's get into our topic at hand because this was something that we had a really interesting experience. Uh, Sean, you and I but it, uh, got to play a friend of ours a, a tabletop game on TTS that they've been working on, and uh, we play tested a couple of times and we had a really interesting experience. And the topic at hand is play testing is marketing, and I, I feel like this statement is something that you know people may generally agree with, but how do you how do you make sure that playtesting is worthwhile? And then also, you know, from, from every, every angle. So I don't know, let's just, let's just dive in. Where do you want to start? So one thing I will um, probably open up with is that I was watching a video by Alex Radcliffe recently, and he was talking about the idea that he was really just, I'll include the link in the show notes, but he was talking of how the board game review or content creation space is marketing. And then he was talking about how, a lot of that gears towards being quite positive because people don't want to, I suppose, dunk on publishers. But another reason he was saying that is because in the majority of cases, most games are actually good. He was saying that his average review, because by the time he accepts a game, he's kind of like maybe proofed it a bit Mm -hmm. and he's done a bit of research. So he's probably accepting a game he he thinks is going to at least be good. And that's why he was saying his average review rating is Mm 3.5, which he says is a good rating. So he says it's not good enough for him to keep in his collection because he has so many great games. He has so many games that are like four to five <laughs> that yeah. it's a good game, but it's not one he keeps because, well, he's a reviewer and he's got like a lot of turnover. But for the most cases, it's a good game. It would be, hap- it would be happy to sell on the sound shelf and play. So that's the arena you're stepping into as a game developer, as a marketer. It's like your game has to be good just to be considered these days. It's not acceptable to have a game that is subpar, a game that is imbalanced. Playtesting really helps helps with the marketing in that regard is, is that it allows you to actually enter the arena in which you're you're stepping in. It's like, this is the beginning. It's like yeah. the bare minimum is to have a good game. Yeah, in fact, I think, you know, as, as I went through this experience and have helped others through as well, 
playtesting, it is the main barometer that I used to say, is this game ready for Kickstarter? If you say, I have a really great idea for a game and you make it and it's like, you know, you you pay for all the art and whatnot, and then you take it to Kickstarter and then you have to play test. You can actually, I mean, I actually, there's one very particular case I think of that made over a million dollars, it's $1.2 million, the company, you know, on, on Kickstarter. And the company discovered afterward that players did not like how the combat worked. They did not like how the game played. And they actually bankrupted themselves by having to play test or, you know, go back to the drawing board and like redo a lot of their systems. They just had way too much overhead in their company, way too many people that depended on uh, getting paid in order to keep them, keep their doors active. The, the, the right decision in this case would have been to release a subpar game because you have a lot of people who backed it and expected it and you wanted to make it really good. I understand, but you put the cart before the horse and you, you released a subpar game on Kickstarter that looked really good. And then when people said they didn't like it, uh, this company actually made the ill-fated decision to retune and, and change the game. Whereas they didn't have enough cash to, to survive that process. Kind of a, a very, sad or very uh, cautionary tale. I think that before you go to Kickstarter, when, when you're making a game on the side along, alongside what you're currently doing for a full-time job or whatever, if you're just like a passion project, then you don't have to go to Kickstarter. You can go to Kickstarter when it's ready. For me, I had a little bit of a, a combination where I felt the game was ready but I'm still going to play test and tune it and, you know, for deliverance and make sure that it's as awesome as it can be. And I'm only going to go to Kickstarter when I, when I really need to. And there came a point where it's like, Hey, I'm running out of money. I need to go to Kickstarter so that I can finish this. And which I think is really the whole idea behind Kickstarter is like, without it, I couldn't actually bring my vision to life. I needed I needed that that crowdfunding campaign. So, uh, and that's because, of course, it needed a bunch of art. It needed, uh, you know, my my artist needed to get paid, and in order to do that, I had to I had to go to Kickstarter. I always re am reminded of a quote by Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson Games, uh, the company behind Munchkin and GURPS and the Illuminati. <laughs> um, one thing he said was that it was some crazy high numbers. Like they create four, ten to fourteen games a year. But they publish one because most of the games they develop, he says, are garbage. They, they, and this is, I think, the, the key to playtesting is to iterate quickly, is to find out quickly: is there something here that's fun? Is it working? And it's okay if it's not. Scrap it, start again, modify, tweak. I think you can, and this is why maybe theme can almost come later. It's like you first have to work out if the game by itself is fun, and then iterate upon that. So right now, I'm I'm developing like a dueling game. And I'm starting at bare minimum. It's like I'm introducing the most simple things. Like this is like two characters and like a very simple arena uh, with like no terrain. But the, the plan is eventually add line of sight and different abilities. But I first want to work out if the, the fundamentals of the system is fun to begin with. And if it's not, I'm scrapping it. I'm not, not going to yeah. devote <laughs> you know huge amounts of time, energy, and money into something that at its foundational level is not working. So basically it went from concept to tabletop simulator, I think in about a week. <laughs> and I like, think actually, yeah, that it might be even, it might've been even uh, shorter. Cause I think it was like a conversation with you. We were having, I was just kind of throwing an idea like, oh yeah, have a, have a prototype up um, by Friday. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I just yeah. I went, I went and did it. And I play tested it with my wife, play tested it with my son, who's five, which is more like a solo play test yeah. to be honest <laughs> I was able to kind of iron some things out but that that design i'm holding very lightly if it's mm -hmm. if i play test that i'm like this game's just not fun i'm scrapping it i'm not i'm not i'm not like um sold on on this idea and i think there's probably i think that that's sort of needed this kind of like right. i'm not so emotionally attached to ideas and i'm willing to modify as yep. i get new information because i think one of the problems right is objectivity you can become so familiar with something that you can almost forget that other people mm -hmm. aren't as familiar. And then this is where playtesting play can help remedy some of your blind spots. Yeah. And, you know, even beyond that, I'll say with a passion project, let's say if it's your, you know, you may have uh, worked on other games, but for me, Deliverance, 
was far more than familiarity. I was, it was something that I needed to make. It was like really, really important to me. I cared about it more than any, anyone else would, you know, any publisher could care about a game. I cared about my own design before I decided to become a publisher. And I had all this passion was like, deliverance needs to exist. I won't accept uh, that the game is not good. I must make it good. Then you can, you run into the problem of people calling your baby ugly. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, that I think that there's, there's a lot to be, in fact, we could just open up this, um, can of worms right now where when you're really, really passionate about something and it's something you feel like is going to really, really take the market by storm that, or that really needs to exist, or that is like your thing you've been working on for a long time. We have people that have been working on Gibbs like for, for a very long time or have created entire universes based around their card games and whatnot. One of them that we did recently was Last Fish that funded on Kickstarter. They created a really, really cool website and like a ton of story for for this behind this game. And it was just, you could tell it was such a passion project for them. And so the uh, it's not an option to, to lay that one down for them, but it's it's still something that is extremely necessary to be able to rip the entire like a uh, a car analogy rip the engine out of the car and then put mm -hmm. something new in if it's not running right it's mm -hmm. not running right you may keep the the outer exterior of the car but if the mechanics aren't you know if i don't feel like i'm uh in deliverance an angel fighting demons if i feel like i'm a plastic figure pushing cubes around a board and rolling dice and playing math the 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 board game then it just isn't right. You know, mm -hmm. you have to change it no matter how passionate you are about it. And sometimes there can be some significant resistance to change just simply because you had, this is the vision you have. You need to be able to roll to determine if you hit because that's what games do like this. And I just feel like, you know, you need to be open-minded to, to others' feedback. And this is kind of where, you know, playtesting comes in. When you playtest a game, and someone for the very first time tells you, oh, I didn't like it because of this, or I had a hard time because of that. You know what your response should be. Thanks for your feedback. And then kind of how, how can I change it? Or maybe they don't get it. I'm just not going to change it. Uh, but. And sometimes it comes, it comes down to opinion, right? So I know the first time I played deliverance, one thing I found difficult was just how the damage works. Cause you add damage, you don't subtract it. And I've, I'm so used to like attacking a monster and subtracting health points. Mm -hmm. So for mm -hmm. me, it took a while just for my, my brain to compute to that mm -hmm. system. And I understand why you did that because it, it greatly reduces the setup time, you know, cause you just set up, you can play, you don't have to like add health tokens to each individual thing. So it, it makes mm -hmm. sense. So I, I understand why you did that. So, but some playtesters might not understand that why you did it that way. Mm -hmm. So they, they give their feedback and it's like, well, this is confusing to me, but there's a reason behind it that you know, but they don't know. So it's taking yep. It's taking that feedback and understanding what what it is, but only you can have the proper resolution because you have more information at hand than mm -hmm. the playtester. So yeah. I think playtesters are, are is great for maybe finding holes or potential issues in your games mm -hmm. that you can then remedy in other ways. It doesn't mean you have to scrap the entire concept, but just be aware of certain conditions in your game. Yeah, I think that the the key really in all of this, we're talking about interactions between you as the designer and a play tester who's helping you test your game and make it better and a lot of the time whenever they tell you something it's from a good place they want to help they want to be they, they want to give you good feedback and honest feedback you know this is one of the reasons i think it's ex especially important to not solely rely on family and friends to tell you if your game is good because they like you and they, whatever you do, they're going to say, oh yeah, this is great. You know, even though it might not be great. I've got family people. you have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. find my, my brother is actually, um, he's the other extreme. He can be quite critical, yeah. which yep. I actually find helpful because if you actually take his, his criticism and you turn it down by 20%, you actually have a very good feedback. So I always take, actually, take yeah, I've got my, my best, but my best buddy Brighton is, is that exact same way where he will shred me. Yeah. And it's like, dang, that hurt. <laughs> but it's, it's helpful because usually within that kind of shredding is an element of truth. You just have to decipher yep. it. Um, usually right. it's over-exaggerated over in those instances. <laughs> but I still appreciate that. I actually prefer that than 
something that's a bit like, oh, it's great. Okay, well, that yep. isn't helpful as a playtester. I kind of need you to find problems that I can resolve. Yeah, one time I was uh, playing a, a very early iteration of Deliverance when it was just a cardboard and you know markers on you know type game, and I took all the minis out from uh, War of the Ring to be my angels and demons and whatnot. And uh, we had status effects, and one of the status effects was called blind. It actually we we reinstituted. It, uh, now it's called cursed. But back in the day, you had to roll to see if you hit something. And now it's deterministic combat. So if you deal two damage to something, you just add two damage tokens to that thing. You don't have to roll the dice. But back then you did. And what blind did is it just simply reduced your chance to hit by one. So whatever, if you roll, let's say a six-sided dice. If you roll a one, you miss. If you roll a six, you crit. And anything else, you succeed uh, with a regular amount of damage. And so uh, if I'm dealing three damage to something, I'd either miss, I'd deal three damage, or I'd deal four if I, if I crit. And blind subtracted one from the result. So by default, you could no longer critically hit, and you had twice as uh, the chance to miss, which uh, totally makes sense. And yet, not really for angels, though. This guy, I remember one of my playtesters, his name is Roger. He got up and closed his eyes and walked like Frankenstein around the game, the board game store. He's like, I can't see anything. I'm blind. And he was just like yelling. And, you know, he's like, does this make any sense for an angel? And he's just making a big scene. And it was, it was kind of embarrassing, but dude, it was kind of a good point. Got the point <laughs> was, across. Yeah. And um, so what I think the, the playtester's job is to tell you that there's a problem, but you as the developer designer's job is to figure out the, the correct solution. solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they'll give you, I mean, people will sometimes will spend a long time telling you how you need to fix this. And they'll be very passionate that you must fix it in this manner. And, you know, they're like, I don't, you know, I don't know why in the world you would fix it in any other way, it's, which would certainly be inferior. Of course, you are the person that knows all of the information and you mm -hmm. see the entire picture. But, but you know, sometimes they're right. And other times they're totally wrong. However, they are correct that there was a problem. So I think that that, you know, in regard to marketing, when you are sitting at a table with a playtester that's giving you feedback, they will number one, appreciate feeling heard. If you are defensive in any way, if you're like, oh, well, that, that's actually because of this, or this is the reason that it's that way, or you should not defend your idea. You should let them tear it down. You should let them tear it apart. You should listen to them. And because again, it's coming from a good place. They are trying to help you with their best advice. And you asked for it. You asked them to sit down and you asked them for their feedback and they gave it to you. So the, the best thing that you can do is just say, thank you for your feedback. Sometimes that's all you need to say because their ideas are totally crap. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's like, but in any case, you are, should be appreciative. So, you know, you should ingrain this phrase into your vocabulary. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you so much for your feedback. I really appreciate it. And then you can move on. You don't need to defend or whatever. Yeah. And I, I think that's important because there is an element of playtesting, which is burdensome to the user because really playtesting only, the only advantage. Crappy game. Exactly. <laughs> like it's, people are sacrificing their time to As learn to play a game that probably isn't balanced, probably isn't, you know, very clear. Doesn't have might, the art. Might not, might not be fun. And they're doing it for you. So I think that, that's something to keep in mind. There's a burden to playtesting. And maybe that's something that we can jump into. Like, how do you get people to playtest your, play your game? Because there is that element of like, well, I need you to do something for me, which mm -hmm. is kind of awkward. I know that Gabe Barrett... Um, and he has a YouTube video we include in the, the show notes where he talks about playtesting. He, he has playtesting tips. And one thing he's, he recommends is inviting you know friends, family over and buying a meal for them or cooking a meal for them and kind of making it like a, a meal experience. So they get a meal out of it. And it's like, oh, that's, yep. that's a nice thing to do. Maybe I don't know, just throwing ideas out there. If you're playtesting on tabletop simulator, maybe buy takeaway for the person your, <laughs> that's say, give me your address and I'll send you a, a takeaway. You don't have to cook tonight. And that way you can spend more time playtesting with me. That, they might appreciate that. Maybe it's offering to buy a tabletop simulator for them. You know, maybe mm -hmm. it's I don't know, helping them with, with something that they're, they're stuck with. If you, you know, run yeah. a business, you could help you know, exchange, maybe barter some things. I find that the most influential thing is simply asking somebody if they'd be willing to help you. Because helping 
it's it's like giving is better than receiving kind of thing. You know, you you love giving. It, it feels really good to give. And uh, intrinsically, that's something that they gain from it by helping you. Now, if the experience was bad, they might not want to repeat it. But I, I definitely think that that by itself is kind of a cool, I mean, it's just you should help others. And then in return, they will want to help you, right? And so uh, maybe offer to play test someone else's game and then seek for them to play test yours. What, what I actually did in the very beginning was I went to a game store, uh, just my local, my friendly local game store. And I said, hey, I have this game that I really want to test with, with players. And um, I'd be willing to teach rules and everything, but it's just, it's in pro, it's a work in progress. So I, is there anybody that would be willing to do that? Well, everybody was playing their own games. Like they, they brought other games that day they wanted to play. And so I just simply asked, well, um, would I be able to join you as another player in, in the game that you're playing? And I learned how to play Mystic Veil for the very first time. And it was pretty fun. Um, and then I asked them as the game was ending, like, hey, you guys, are you guys planning on playing another game? And they said, yeah. And I asked, would you guys maybe be willing to give mine a shot? And the answer was, of course, yeah, let's do that. Everyone was really excited that they were going to play test a new game. And so all I had to do was just simply involve myself, you know, play a game with others. So, and so what you're saying I, is it requires a bit of a relationship, right? People need to like trust you and you kind of have to like, yeah, it was like organic marketing. People have to trust you before you start selling your wares. You know, it's like right. it's the same here. People have to trust you, know you a little bit like you, and then you can ask for them to play test. Yeah, so you're just simply going to invest a little bit into others, show them that, hey, uh, I'm a normal human just like you, not a lizard person in a human suit, um, and I'm not, <laughs> looking to, I'm not looking to take from you. But yeah, something as simple as that, like, hey, can I join? Do you have room for another player? And I'm sure that they would say yes. In, in the vast majority of cases, people would be happy to do that. Um, some cases, people would say, oh, well, we're playing Gloomhaven, just the two of us were, you know, 20 scenarios in. And that's kind of what we were planning on doing tonight. I think that that's completely fine. I've had uh, situations of similar nature. It wasn't Gloomhaven, but it was some other game. I can't remember. Maybe it was Kingdom Death Monster, where they were. it was like this huge game where they were like excited to play together and it was going to last for like four hours. And so, you know, I just found another group. So I definitely think that that building a relationship will help you. Now, in regard to marketing stuff, as I said before, playtesting is marketing and if you kind of think back to that virtuous cycle of the, the concept of banks, you need to bank the result of your marketing. So when you are sitting at a table playtesting your game, um, you should absolutely have your MailChimp app or MailerLite app ready to go when, you know, after the game finishes and they give feedback and that kind of thing. Um, or after the playtest session, maybe it only lasts an hour and you call the game before, it, before the game finishes or whatever. Um, I say, or whatever, a lot. You want to ask them if they'd like to follow along. And if, if they, so usually they'll say yes. And then one of two things will happen. They'll give you their real email or their spam email. And that's okay. <laughs> right. That's why you do MailChimp or MailerLite because MailChimp or MailerLite, you can segment the bad emails out later. If it, so, has, if it um, has 69 in it, it's a fake, it's a fake yeah, email. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> XX godlike 69 XX <laughs> one, one, three, three, seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's definitely something that, um, you, you know, I, I, I still remember the very first people that ever play tested my game. Their names are John, Will, and Mel, and they were, uh, really, really cool. You need an uh, Easter egg somewhere in your games of, of those characters. I should. You're right. That's, it's amazing. So, but yeah, they, they offered to, you know, I joined them and played and was their fourth player for Mystic Vale. And then we, you know, we played a game of deliverance. And then I came back like a week later and they were each there again. And I said, hey, you guys need a fourth player. What are you guys playing? And it was just real easy. It was like, oh, we're going to play Scythe. And so I jumped in. And then after that, I was like, you guys want to try deliverance again? I, I made some changes. They're like, oh, yeah, we'd love to. We love that game. Let's do it. And it became really easy to get meaningful feedback. And then, you know, it, it, it was very easy at that point to add them to my email list and that kind of thing. So, um, cool. and then actually, as I, as I would return, they actually sought me out. They were like, you know, as deliverance started to get more art and that kind of thing, they were like, we had plans to play this one, but 
do you are you playing deliverance tonight we'll table the game we were going to play if we can play deliverance now and that that's when i knew that deliverance was um, something fancy or at least i you know it was like my first there's something there yeah i think part of the uh the element of playtesting is you know one thing that is really really important is that you need to uh so you you know why your game is cool you think you know why your game's cool i'll put it that way your playtesters you should be no, you should be asking your playtesters why they think your game is cool. I, I still remember to this day uh, when I played with Sam Healy, uh, the very first time we were at Dice Tower West, and you know he agreed to play to try Deliverance. They don't he doesn't usually play prototypes at the time he's with the Dice Tower, so I mean, they get inundated with requests to play games. But he said this is a theme I really like. I'm willing to give you a shot and and play it. And we had a, we had a lot of fun. And, um, there were, there were also problems, but he, I asked him what he really liked because he has played so many games. I mean, his professional job for a really long time was just playing games behind camera. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I was like, what do you like? Because he's played tons of games like this, you know, dungeon crawly, heavy skirmish games, you know, that sort of thing. And he said, one thing that I was really surprised about, which was, I like this and he pointed to the character, uh, the character sheet that was in front of him. He's like, I like that all my actions are right here. That I don't have to look in the rule book. I don't have to remember anything. But the, all the actions are right here. And I thought, I figured other games did that. But I guess not many do. There's always mm-hmm. like your basic attack and movement. And you get four actions every round. And here they are listed out just by the names. And it's like, you got to go figure out in the rule book what it is that attacking. You know, how far can I attack? And oh, yeah, it's that stat that I use. And whatever it's convoluted and complicated but with deliverance it was very straightforward and that actually kind of became something that i would regularly share and people that especially the people that were less experienced were very happy about that Mm -hmm. they were like okay there are all these characters with all these different skills oh when i pick a character all i have to worry about is what's in front of me it's like yeah they were like oh wow this is a lot simpler than i thought so that came directly from playtesting. And eventually, when it comes down to it, the number one way for a game to market and spread is at the kitchen table or you know the dining room table. When someone gets the game, has a great experience with it, and then shares it with someone else, that's the number one way that games sell. You know, And there's no amount of marketing dollars that you can invest into a, into a product. Just it's impossible to invest you could invest infinite money and a game that just has a really, really great experience at the table will make more money than, than yours. It's, it's just something that is uh, very, I mean, obviously I'm sure that there are edge cases in the wild example I just made up, but I mean, it's, it's true that the very first time that people play your game, that's the opinion they have. And if, I mean, if you get somebody that, had a bad experience on their very first play when they're a complete noob and they're getting rules wrong and you're right there in the room as the human rule book. I mean, imagine, you know, you, you fix it, but imagine if you just simply weren't in the room, you know, if, if they had to consult the rule book and they were having a bad experience and not getting it. And, you know, then that's the problem with the game. You may say, Oh, that person's dumb, but they are not going to recommend your game to anybody. How can you improve your game? So that that person has a good experience and will tell someone that's really kind of the crux of the issue. Yeah. And I think it's not to make excuses, you know, because it might be easy to say, oh, when you're a bit familiar, this Mm -hmm. will make sense. I was just recently listening to a a video critique by Asmogold. It's like a Mm -hmm. Twitch streamer covers like gaming content. Never heard of him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he was talking, he was reviewing this video of like MMOs in the past versus MMOs today particularly the leveling experience. He says like the leveling, leveling experience in MMOs in the past was part of the game, was part of the adventure, was part of the journey. Now it's just a unnecessary step to get to end game content. It's almost there as a grind just to be there. This idea that, oh, the game gets good once you put 50 hours into it so you can get to end game content is evidence that your game is bad <laughs> because you're asking a lot, of, lot from people to invest that much time into a game, yes, that could potentially be very good end game, but the amount of people that are actually going to get there, it's it's far too numb. To be honest, it's, it's one reason why I think World of Warcraft died as as mm-hmm. an esport because to get to a competitive 
esport, you couldn't just jump in. You had to level a character. You, there's so much to learn that it was almost impossible mm-hmm. for newcomers to enter that arena um, and, yep. and do, do well. It was The barrier of entry was so high. So it was very competitive for a small group of people who loved it, but eventually that group died as it, yep. as it would over time because it couldn't feed it with new people. So I think that's something to keep in mind is to understand that your game might be good if people invest lots of time to learn all these things, but your goal is to get people excited at the first moment so they are willing to invest more time to get better at it. So that's yeah. something to keep in mind. You know, there are so many games that somebody will buy and play once, and that's it. And the reason that they won't play it again is because they have another game that they like better or that maybe a game was hard to learn or hard to teach or, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they had a bad experience and just weren't super excited to get it back to the table. Um, I know that's been my experience for a couple of games. Other times like, uh, you know, wingspan is a game that's super popular that everyone, everyone loves. Um, I had some, I've had some fun with it. I've played it like, you know, I bought it and I played it, uh, once right away. And then another two times, since then, you know, always with my wife, just the two of us, it's more not my style of game. And I think that that's okay. You know, it would be the reason that it's on my shelf still is because it's a great game for when a certain group comes over, like people mm-hmm. that are not extremely like hardcore gamers and are looking to have a fun time. And if we're there to entertain them, then Wingspan is a great choice. And so that's why I'll take that one out. But when I buy games for me, I really expect. I personally want, like, for example, I got Elder Scrolls Skyrim, uh, the Modifius uh, Kickstarter. That was a recent game that came in. And the I played Modifius that. Came out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, sorry. And so I have played that a bunch because it's just, it's really fun. There are problems with it, but the game itself is so fun that I've just house ruled away the problems. And we are just, you know, we've played many hours of it because it's just, it's a game that you just want to take one more turn. It's kind of a pain in the neck to keep set or to uh, to set up and and whatnot. So we just keep it set up. We have a, a board game table that has like a table topper put on, and uh, I know a lot of people won't have something like that. So that type of there are some inherent issues with the game that I feel like could be could have been thought through a little bit better if only they had infinite time. But I think that the game itself is good enough that I just keep coming back to it. Um, so I was actually really, really pleased with, with that purchase. I even still, I think it's made, it was you know mainly some rule book uh, issues I think would be like what others would commonly say would be the problems. But, but I think that the game itself was really, really fun and that's what matters. And that's why I would recommend it to someone. If you like Skyrim, then buy this. It's an easy, easy decision. And that's right. one of the beauties of board games is the ability to homebrew and, to be honest, I always homebrew my games <laughs> just because I'm like, oh, why did they do this? This would be better if it did this or, or whatever, especially when you start getting a bit of grasp of it. And I think that's that used to be far more prevalent in the video game community, particularly the PC video game community. Mm-hmm. Think of all the games that came out of mods, of community yep. community mods, like Counter-Strike, Dota. K- K- yeah, Dota. Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike came out of a Half-Life mod, Dota. Um, which I mean, it? I guess every MOBA game. Yeah, um, every MOBA because it really came out of Warcraft, right? Yep. Um, the, RTS games. So... That has been lost now with, the, I suppose, how games are monetized now. You kind of get a license to play. Well, I think that that's still in the board game space where it's your game. You can sell it. You can trade it. You can modify it. You can mm-hmm. homebrew rules. So I think that that makes the space really unique and, and really cool. Yeah. I had uh, one one of my, uh, actually Gabe, Gabe Barrett, uh, told me I would put the health on the enemies. It's like, oh, well, we make it so that you add health when you deal, or you add damage tokens when you deal damage. It's like, well, I would do it differently. And uh, just because he, that's how it, kind of his brain works. And, uh, you know, you can't really say anything other than, okay, yeah, that's that's cool. I, I know in my head that, you know, if you get an extra health stat, if you're, you know, if you're taking away damage tokens, like if you're taking away health, then it's, you just, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you. But if you're adding damage tokens instead of, you know, instead you, actually gain one extra health. Uh, so it, it makes the game a little bit easier if you're adding the damage tokens instead of taking health points away. But that's something that's in my head that as long as he's having fun and playing it his way, I think that it's totally within realm to house rule. 
And I think, I even think that players that do things like that, you should consider like, is this the right move? Um, one other major thing I think in regard to playtesting, you know, more of a game development point is that if a player that has played your game for the very first time, maybe you've played your game 20 times and this is the very first time you've encountered this issue, that issue you should not brush off because that one player is representative of a huge group of people that think like them. So if it's the first time you've seen it, that's just thank your lucky stars that you've seen it now. And uh, don't discount it and saying, oh, well, it's only happened once in 20 games. Well, when you have 10,000 plays, then it's going to be, I mean, it's going to happen whatever, 2,000 times or whatever, 500 times. I don't know. Math is hard. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's a, a really important element that, you know, even if it's a person's very first time and they have a problem, they may not play a second time. So telling them, oh, you'll get it when you've played three to five times is not always a very satisfactory response. You know, it's like, well, I just won't play it again then. I'll just play this other game that I that I know that I think does it better. And one thing I'm I'm I was I was thinking of, I was also looking at some uh, some type of game development video. I don't know if I'll include the link in the show notes. I can't it's been a while since I, I did it, but it was a video that was talking about a particular Japanese role-playing game and how in this particular game you had to cross the desert. But in order to not suffer from a a dot, a damage over time effect you had to drink this cool water. Now, the cool water was very inexpensive and was pretty much accessible everywhere. So the the sort of the, the 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 game design flaw in the system is why even have that system? You know, if yeah. it's if it's so accessible, it's just like an unnecessary step to do something which doesn't really add to the immersion, the environment, or the feel of the game. I think sometimes that's something that you really need to be careful with. Um, I think particularly when you when you are taking concepts, we talked a little mm-hmm. about this before the podcast began, but you, you're taking concepts from video games and you're trying to transcribe them to tabletop because they don't always transition very well. Um, yep. So there's advantages and disadvantages of being on, on in, in a tabletop environment. Um, so coming back to this uh, cool water analogy, that's something that you need to be very aware of when, when playtesting. Is there something in here that isn't necessary. Can I make this simpler for people, easier for people? Yeah. I think that's that's something to definitely keep in mind when, when you're playtesting in terms of marketing because the easier it is to pick up and play and learn how to play, well, the, the more people are going to play it. That's essentially yep. how, how it works. I think what, what I call that is elegance uh, or maybe deceptive simplicity. When there's depth, like strategic depth to a game and you only have to make one of two choices or maybe you get one action and you decide between three different things, um, and there's there's elegance and deceptive simplicity. That means that there's strategic depth to the choice you make. And games like that are people are are games that people can really sink their teeth into. So you have to first identify. Uh, Gabe Barrett actually he says find the fun. What part of your game actually makes up the core experience? The the reason that people would want to play this game. And for me, you know, for Deliverance, it was, you know, you want to feel like this epically powerful angel fighting against demons, defending saints, and like you're just about to get overwhelmed by the hordes of darkness. That's kind of the experience I wanted people to have. So the core gameplay loop, the mechanics that allow that to happen are the tactical combat on a grid that you're fighting the demons and whatnot as your your angels. And then at the same time, you balance the moves that you make in tactical combat with this darkness board, which you have to deal with in a different way. But you have the same action pool. You can either attack the demon or cast down this darkness, but it you can't do both at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. And that's really the core gameplay loop. A lot of other fun uh, bells and whistles in, inside that. But um, anything that wasn't adding needed to get changed or removed. So, for example, I used to have story uh, that we that we, you know, you would draw an event card every round. You would draw an event card and then something would happen kind of like a, you know, maybe a dead of winter or something like that. You read this event card and then make a decision, either one or the other. And it's, you know, and then you continue the, the actual game. But what I found was that it just didn't, I mean, people loved combat and darkness and then pausing everything to read an event was kind of lame. And regardless of how cool I thought it was or how immersive I thought it was, it just was a break in the action. So we actually ended up cutting it. And uh, the game was just much better for it. Yeah, I think that that's really important because 
one, one thing I found in the games I've developed, I've developed games more so for my, my family, but I found that when I added things which obscured players for making decisions, all it did was increase the playtime. It didn't actually add to the experience. So I actually found that by having things a bit more deterministic, like it's this or that. So it's either your thing succeeds or you take damage. And by making things more cutthroat, you actually make decisions far more rewarding and you reduce the playtime. So it's like it's like this double-edged sword. And I think that that's that's important. Because one thing you have to keep in mind with tabletop games is the time investment. It's, mm-hmm. it's they're far more grueling than a video game. You know, people have to usually research the game um, or they play it somewhere and they they get they buy the game, have to wait for it to come in the post. They then get the rule book, they read the rule book, they then have to table it. And then they're sitting down and playing a game which could last anything between one hour, two hours, depending on the game or whatever. Add another hour if it's their first time playing and they have to look through the rules a bunch. So know. people are far more invested in winning or achieving certain outcomes. And this is actually, I, I never understood this. Why are so many board Why do so many board games use a victory point system, which I, I personally don't like. I don't like victory point systems. And I think it's because, let's take uh, Terraforming Mars for an example. If you're playing that game for what, four hours, if you, like, including like set up reading rules and actually playing the game, it, it would feel pretty terrible to play that for four hours and just lose. <laughs> but if yeah. you can feel like, oh, well, I had I contributed to Terraforming Mars, even though I didn't win, the blow isn't as, as stunning. And I think that's something right. to keep in mind is that when... And maybe there's something that's more applicable to competitive games. You kind of want them to be fast because you don't want to have like a a three-hour game just to lose. Maybe this is the problem with Warhammer because you can have like these long skirmishes and then like you lose. But usually you have a lot of fun in, in that yeah. process as well. But I find I find it kind of comes when when you know you're gonna when you realize you're gonna lose, the game should end fast. Yeah. When you realize you're gonna win, the game should end fast. A lot of the time, engine building games, things like Scythe or or more like you know, Fantastic Factories uh, is a great example. I like this game. Um, you build your engine and you you run the engine. By the time you can run your full engine and do all this cool stuff, the game ends like one turn later. Star Realms is a great example of this where you have like a garbage deck and as you get rid of the bad cards and add in good ones, it's like you really start to do cool stuff. So your final turn, you may end up forcing your opponent to discard four cards you may end up drawing your entire deck and then having to reshuffle your discard pile, drawing that too and dealing 900 damage to your opponent or whatever. And that feels really good, but the game ends, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it doesn't drag on and drag on. It's, it, you know, the one thing I, I don't like about uh, war of the ring, it's actually one of uh, uh, Stephen Bonacor really loves war of the ring. And I remember grabbing it and playing it. It was one of those games I had to play over like a three day period to, to learn. It was one of my first games that I ever got and, and um, trying to like get through the rules was a real slog and, and everything. But I recognized at the end of like, or at the start of day two, I recognized that I was going to win that I, I felt like it was chess and I was, you know, 25 moves away from checkmate and my opponent had no idea, which was why I kind of kept, we kept playing. It was not fun to recognize I'm going to win and then it's so long until the game ends. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like, um, you know, every action that you take needs to push you toward the end game. One thing I, I want to I touch on as well, be worth mentioning, we talked about adapting video game concepts to the board game and that they're, they're not the same and that you kind of have to conceptualize all of these things. Yep. It also reminds me of Richard where he, he talks about civilization. So he loves civilization, the video game. He, he bought the board game, but he says by the time he set it up and played it, it was so complex that he may as well just be played the video game. And I always think you got to keep that in mind as well. It's like as a tabletop de- a game designer, you are competing with all other forms of entertainment. You are, com- mm-hmm. you are competing with video games. So if your game is so complex that it's basically no different than a video game, People's going to play the video game because it's easier because all that stuff's going to be automated in a video game. So you got to keep that in mind as well. You got to think of this is one thing I've been thinking uh, in terms of the game I'm developing, like a dueling game. And there's certain actions that I'm t- I'm taking from video games and trying to apply them to the, the tabletop like the space. Game mechanics. Yeah, yeah. and, and you, they don't actually transition very well. So I'm I'm trying to th- I'm trying to capture the feel of that mm-hmm. and in a sense almost make it a, a bit abstract. But the idea is you should still feel the same, even though you're taking the, the mechanics are, 
are, are far more simplified in the tabletop experience because you have to simplify them. If it's, if it's going to do exactly what a video game is going to do, one, your game's going to be um, unnecessarily complex, which we've talked about. You're going to make it unnecessarily long. You're going to bore people to tears and people won't want to play it. And then there we go. There's like your marketing all down the drain yep. because uh, you, know, you, you made math the board game. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's one of the big. Uh, I, I often tell people that Deliverance is like a video game on a table. Um, so they they ask if it's a video game or a tabletop game or whatever, and I say it's like a video game on a table. One of the things that video games have is they have a, a system that does math for you. They'll do all the math. So the computer system does all the math for you. The problem with board games is that that are too mathy is that the cognitive load on a player is extremely high. And yes, I've been through, I've took, I've taken calculus three times. I passed all three times. Um, <laughs> and I just, I tend to be kind of good at math, but I don't like to do math. It's one of those things that is just my, my personality, I guess, or what I like. I remember trying to get critical hits, like trying to turn critical hits from, because every, you know, dungeon crawl has crits. And, you know, you have like a 17% crit chance or whatever, right? And it's like every everyone's like, great, you know, I want 21% crit chance. It's like, cool, the machine does all the work for you. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to figure out, like, did you roll a critical hit? How much damage did you deal? What happened as a result of that damage? Did the enemy get eliminated? The computer does it all for you. And you just see your hammer swing and then a bad guy fall over and a big red number pop up. And you're like, yeah, that felt so good. Uh, well, on a tabletop game, it's way more complicated. And so mm-hmm. with Deliverance, we eliminated critical hits because people would have to add, no, number one, when you had to roll dice to see what happens, you deal four damage to something. You have to roll a dice to see if you hit. You hit, you have to look at that number, recognize if that's a regular hit or a critical hit. If it's a critical hit, you got to add one. So you have to add one to the original amount of damage you dealt which you might've forgot, but go look back at the card now. Oh, it was five. So I'm dealing six damage. Where's that six damage get applied? Uh, which demon or which enemy was it? It was this one. All right. I am going to go into the token box and pick up six damage tokens and put them on that demon. And after that's done, it's like, wait, where were we? Yes. <laughs> what? Whose turn is it? Is it still my turn? Is where it your am turn? I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what day is it? Um, you just can't afford to, to do all of that. So what we did instead was we simply made combat deterministic, mm-hmm. meaning that if you deal five damage, you do not need to roll a dice. You do not need to draw a card to see what happens. And I bet you, you thought the same. Yeah, it did. In fact, it felt better because mm-hmm. it was so fast. The cognitive load was zero. It's like, I look at my character once, I deal five. I look at that character next to me. That guy takes five. I take five damage tokens, apply it to that character, and we're ready, like on to the next thing. It, it's very fast. I have no math to do. It's like I have, you know, the I, all I have to do is just grab the damage tokens. Maybe someone else will grab them because they were the, you know, they were closer to the cardboard tokens or whatever. Yeah. Because I think what, what you want to do is, is sort of streamline people's decision space. You want people mm-hmm. to be able to make decisions quickly that they because that's where you get fun and games come from you get rewarded for making a good decision oh i made that yep. decision i feel smart and i'm getting rewarded in this game for, for doing that great you know that's where the fun comes in so if you can sort of speed yep. up that decision space where i think this is where we we, we talk about unne- unnecessary complexity we try and make those decisions as streamlined as possible where they're still strategic but you're just kind of making the the decisions uh, more rewarding because there's less sort of yep. like burden and the computing power. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think, in fact, it should be decided at the very beginning what you want the experience of the players to be like, you know, and that's something that you will, you should chase that as, as a designer, the pinnacle of success is to provide the envisioned experience that you had um, to players. So as I said before with deliverance, I want you to feel like an epically powerful angel. This is, this is what I always tell everybody. You should feel like an epically powerful angel that's just about to die. And that's the, the experience that I'm going for with, with deliverance. And, um, a lot of people say, wow, it felt exactly like that. Or it felt like, you know, there's, there's a, uh, this present darkness is a, a novel that a fantasy novel that, um, a lot of people liken deliverance to. And that's exactly what I want. If people feel like they were pushing cubes around a board, 
then there's a disconnect there that you need to figure it out. Right. And so people, I think they, especially for longer games, I think it matters more, but they should feel clever. Your board game should make them feel smart. Hmm. And, you know, even if the decision is easy, like for example, you know, deliverance has various difficulty levels and there are, you know, at the, at what we call adventure difficulty, it's like for noobs, um, it still feels hard and you can actually lose. If you make bad choices, you'll lose. But in, in every case, it feels scary. It's like, oh, we we're we're about to, I'm only at three health left, you know, but everybody has a card in their hand that can deal with that. But as a newbie, you're, you don't, you don't have all of that information in your head and it still yeah. feels really intense. And so when you get hired at to higher difficulty, or maybe you're a more experienced player, you might say, yeah, I'm at three health, but I feel completely fine because I have two cards in my hand that can prevent damage and I've got plans to do whatever. So I know I can get to my next turn and I'll be fine. So I'm, I have no problem being at three health. So it's just, um, you know, meant to provide a a little bit of a different experience to those players. That's why they need to play higher difficulty. So they actually feel like they're going to (laughs) die. Yeah. Now we did survey the deliverance community and we asked them, why did they back deliverance? And I remember one thing that your community said was that they want to have their say in the development of the game. And that's what playtesting affords. You need to think of playtesting as part of your crowdfunding strategy Mm -hmm. because people want to, if they're passionate enough about the game, they're excited as you are about about the project, about your game, they want to have their say and you need to give them the opportunity to play test mm-hmm. and make their recommendations, make make their voice feel heard mm-hmm. so that you can implement those things or well, not implement them, but they, right. they need to feel like they have a say in the development because that is part of the crowdfunding process. Yeah, actually, that's one of the biggest reasons I would say that people would want your game on their shelf is that they feel like they had a hand in making that what it is. I mean, that's the bottom line. If they have a game that is all about terraforming Mars and, you know, but they, you know, that you, you've, I've got terraforming Mars on my shelf with a couple of expansions. Uh, but if I had uh, the hand or a hand in, in actually, you know, giving feedback on another game like this, I feel kind of like emotionally invested and I'm more likely to just back a game because of that, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's inferior, you know, in theory. So and I've done that before. I've actually backed games specifically because the person listened to me. They did the thing that I wanted. And it's like, yes, now I need to see this come to fruition. I'm on board now. I'm in deep. I can't, I can't back out now. So, so hopefully this was helpful to everybody that is that is just developing a game. You know, really it's a matter of reducing cognitive load on players, making sure that players are uh, feel listened to. And I mean, all the other stuff we talked about. Oh my goodness, there was so much. Yeah. Hopefully you guys found it valuable. Understanding that having a, a good game is the benchmark, that it's the entry level. You know, Your game has to be good to be competitive in, in the marketplace because there are just so many good games out there that your game has to be playtested and right. every, every decision has to be scrutinized because unfortunately for you, <laughs> there's a lot of great games out there and every every person sitting down to play your game is thinking in their minds, why am I playing this? I could be playing X, Y. I could be doing X, Y. So mm-hmm. something to keep in mind. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we want to market your game, but at the same time, we actually will qualify your, your product. We need to make sure that it is ready for that Kickstarter audience, you know? And if they if they can look at it and say, oh, there's this game, but it's there are clear problems, or, you know, the worst thing is if you go to Kickstarter and you don't have a playthrough video or, you know, anything like that, it's like, well, I, I just don't know how the game works. I'm assuming that it's not going to work very well. You know, we just need to make sure that it is ready for the limelight, you know, because players and backers, especially people on Kickstarter, they're used to playing games. They are going to buy something that has, um, where that they, where they don't have an experience like that on their shelf yet. You know, if there was already an Epic angels and demons game out there that, um, delivered the exact same experience as mine, then it just like, what else is going to differentiate it and what is going to make it good? What's going to make it worthwhile for me to actually pay money and the shipping to get it, you know, and, and all of the time that is invested to, uh, to wait for the game to be produced just so that I can have it on my shelf if I already have a product that does what this one does, then I, 
just, I'm not going to back it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what the free market will, will say. And so we want you to be at the top of the free markets priority list is, is what it comes down to. Well then, uh, I guess that's enough on playtesting for now. Give us feedback in the crowdfunding nerds community or send us an email. Let it, let us know what you think about all the stuff that we talked about. And if you would like more content like this and, uh, we'll have robot Richard send us on out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.